All right, get situated. Okay. Um, thank you, Zach, for that prayer. Karen and I, we, uh, we just celebrated our, our 24 years of marriage and ministry together. And that's how we've always thought about it. It's kind of been a combo package. It's a package deal of marriage and ministry that we've, we've had together. Um, and I've learned many lessons about marriage and ministry during those 24 years. Um, and there's just one lesson about ministry that I want to share with you this morning. And it's the importance of knowing your audience when sharing the gospel. That's an important lesson. The Lord has uh, graced me with many opportunities to share the gospel here in the United States, overseas in several countries, um, through our Friend Speak outreach. I've, ha- I've been able to share the gospel with numerous friends, mainly from China. Um, I've been given the opportunity to share the gospel with those who know the Bible well and with those who don't know the Bible at all. I've shared the gospel with men and women. I spent the first seven years of my full-time ministry primarily sharing the good news with college students um, in these last 17 years with people from all age groups. And through the years, I've, I've been reminded time and time again on several occasions about the importance of knowing your audience. Um, early on, when I was doing full-time campus ministry at the University of Georgia, I remember a courageous young female college student coming up to me after I had spoken at a devotional on, on campus. And she told me, Barrett, that was a great message, but when sharing illustrations, do you think that you could possibly consider using something other than sports analogies? Now, <laughs> now, I had played sports all my life. I was young. I was in my 20s. I was newly married. I didn't have any kids. Truly, I just really didn't have a whole other bunch of life experience to draw from for my illustrations. Um, but I appreciated her so much sharing that with me, and I've always remembered that. You know, the message was good, but the illustration just wasn't connecting um, for her or possibly anyone else in the room uh, that doesn't like sports. One of the uh, infamous stories from the annals of Southside history is about the time when I interviewed for the position here uh, back in the spring of 2006. Now, if you've been around a while, then you know this story. Uh, But if you've just been here the last 10 years or so, you might not know it. In fact, the Franklins and I were just talking about this story the other day. But on Saturday night of our interview weekend, there was a meet and greet. There was a time for the church to come and meet Karen and me. And so we were back here in the cat's room on a Saturday night, and the room was packed. I mean, all sorts of folks here from the church wanted to come meet us. Um, And they put Karen and I on two stools, and it was really just a wonderful time. They asked all kinds of questions. It it really was. It was great. 
And we talked about Jesus, and we talked about ministry, and we talked about life and the church. Um, Part of my role at the church in Georgia, where we moved here from, is I preached once a month. I was the full-time campus minister, but I also preached once a month there. And so someone there in the audience asked me that night uh, what my sermon preparation looked like the weeks when I preached. And at the time, what I did is I'd study during the week, and then I liked to go to Starbucks on Thursday mornings. There was a Starbucks right across the street from campus. And you go up on the second floor at 6 a.m. I was there when they opened, and I would just write all morning. I'd get a cup of coffee, go up to the window overlooking campus, and that's where I would write my sermons on Thursday mornings. And I was just sharing that uh, with the group here in the cat's room. Well, there was a kind, older gentleman sitting in the front of the cat's room, and he raised his hand and said, well, around here, we like to do that sort of thing at the Waffle House. (laughs) I respond with, Waffle House? People around here actually drink the coffee at Waffle House? Crickets. There are actually people sitting behind this kind older gentleman making this motion to me. (laughs) Here's where it was important for me to have known my audience because the kind older gentleman's name was Don Howard, and he was the owner of some, if not all, the Waffle Houses here in Fayette County. And I have this button that I've always kept up in my office, and you can't see it from where you're sitting, but Don brought this to me the next day on Sunday uh, it's the, of our interview weekend, and it says, is there life before Waffle House coffee? <laughs> Don was very gracious to me uh, and forgave my quick and sensitive reply about Waffle House coffee. Um, But it's important to know your audience. It's important to know your audience. In the book of Acts, Luke has recorded for us accounts of Paul sharing the good news, sharing the gospel with two very different audiences. They They are contrasting in every possible way. They're completely opposite groups of people. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians that for the sake of the gospel, he has become all things to all people so that by all possible means he might save some. And here in Acts, we get to see that firsthand. The first group is here in Acts chapter 13 in our text. Paul is at a synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. Now, in this context... Paul is sharing the gospel with Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. Everyone in the audience would have been very, very familiar with Scripture. And so Paul begins with Scripture. Paul uses illustrations with Scripture. This is his starting point. This This is, he shares the good news. He shares the gospel using Scripture. 
The second group that we'll look at later on this year is in Acts chapter 17 on Mars Hill in Athens, Greece. In that context, Paul was sharing the gospel primarily with Gentiles, with pagans. No one in the audience would have been familiar with the Scriptures. And so Paul, in that sermon, does not once refer to Scripture, yet still shares the good news with his audience. It's important to know your audience. And so the question then for us to consider about our text this morning in Acts chapter 13 is how does Paul share the gospel with a group of people who are very familiar with Scripture? How does he preach the good news to people who know the Bible? Last time I preached, I put it this way. How do you share the good news with someone who knows the stories but doesn't know who the stories are about? They know the Scriptures, but they don't know Jesus. And even today, I know these people exist because that was me for the first 20 years or so of my life. I knew all the stories. I I grew up a preacher's kid. I knew the Bible. I won the Bible Bowl at church camp. But I didn't know Jesus. Now, you might hear me say that this morning and ask, what do you mean you didn't know Jesus? And I would respond by saying to you, that's a good question. Because I knew who Jesus was. Son of God. And I even knew what Jesus had done, died on the cross for my sins. But I did not know Jesus as my king. And you either know Jesus as your king or you do not know him at all. Matthew Bates is a professor of theology at Quincy University in Illinois, and he puts it this way. He writes, Jesus Christ is a claim, not a name. I really like that a lot because, you see, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Instead, it's his royal title. It's a claim, not a name. It's an assertion about his identity. And to know Jesus Christ is to know Jesus as the Christ. It's to know Jesus as the Messiah. It's to know Jesus as King. And just in case there's some of you that are in here this morning who don't know this, Messiah and Christ are the same title. They can be used interchangeably. They're not two different titles. 
Messiah is the royal title in Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament. Christ is the royal title in Greek, the language of the New Testament. So uh, they're the same title. They can be used interchangeably, but both mean the one anointed to be the king. So let's look at our text this morning. Let's dive in here in Acts chapter 13. Beginning in verse 24, two weeks ago, um, one of our shepherds, Nate Muller, uh, just did an outstanding job uh, preaching out of Luke chapter 7, and he focused on John the Baptist, and John the Baptist, if you remember, he had questions about Jesus' identity. Is Jesus the Christ? Is Jesus the Messiah? Those were his questions. As he was in jail, right before death, his questions weren't about where is he going to go when he dies. His questions weren't about his salvation. His questions were about the identity of Jesus. Is he the Christ? Is he the Messiah? You see, the people of Israel were waiting for the Christ. They were waiting for the Messiah because what they knew that when he showed up, he would rescue them. In fact, Paul says here in verse 25 that some even thought John the Baptist was the Messiah. But John here assured the people that he was not the Messiah. He was John the Baptist, not John the Christ. John came before Jesus to fulfill a very important role. He came to fulfill the role of royal herald. You see, this was long before the days of cell phone and internet. It, it, was, it, it, was, it was difficult getting the word out back then, right? And so in these days, when royalty was traveling to another part of the kingdom, the royal herald had a very important role. He was sent beforehand. He was sent right before the coming of the king in order to announce his coming, in order to prepare the people for his royal visitation. And this was the role of John the Baptist. So because of this incredible role he had, some people even thought he might be the king. He might be the one. But he was not the king. However, he fulfilled a very important role for the king. Verse 26, Paul again addresses his audience. He says, children of Abraham, you God-fearing Gentiles. He addressed the audience in the same way in verse 16. And so he knows his audience. He knows who he's speaking to here. And he reminds them that they're the ones who have received this message of salvation. The king, this Christ, this Messiah, this one that John the Baptist isn't, but but keep prepared the way, he was the royal herald for this Christ, this king, the one raised to rescue his people is the Jewish Messiah. It's the Jewish Messiah. So this, this message of salvation has been sent 
to us, been sent to them. Yet, in verse 27, the people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus in this way. That's big. Let me read that again. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus in this way. In other words, they did not recognize Jesus as the Christ. Oh, they, they knew who Jesus was. Everyone in Jerusalem who was alive during the time of Jesus knew who he was. But they did not recognize him as the Messiah. And listen to this. Instead of recognizing him as the Messiah, instead they condemned him as a sinner. Thus fulfilling the words of the prophets that they had read on every Sabbath day. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying they knew the scriptures. They had heard the stories every Sabbath day. But they did not recognize Jesus as the Christ. But maybe that's not that crazy. I've already shared with you my testimony. And I know many people today who grow up going to church and learning the stories, and they live in a Christian home, and maybe they even go to a Christian school and listen to Christian music, and they know who Jesus is, and they know what he did for them, but like the people of Jerusalem and their rulers, they fail to recognize him as their king. And here's the thing, they just haven't connected the dots yet. They just haven't connected the dots yet because they have all the dots, but they just haven't connected them. You know, when I was a kid, I loved connect the dots. I don't know, there was just something so fulfilling so rewarding to me about doing a connect the dots because it was just a page full of dots and none of it made any sense. And you didn't know what it was going to make. It didn't look like anything. But then you connect the dots and then right there on the page before you, there was a, an elephant or something. You know, whatever, whatever the image was, it just came on the page before you, and it was amazing, right? Well, this serves as a great illustration of how Paul shares the gospel with a group of people who are very familiar with the Scriptures. This is what he does. He helps them to connect the dots. Look at what Paul says in verse 32. This is... This is one of those verses that, uh, verse 32 and 33, I mean, if, you, if you like to highlight things, and man, this is one, you circle, highlight it, 
This is one of those you want to come back to time and time again. Look at what Paul says in verse 32. He says, we tell you the good news. What is the gospel? What is the good news? Paul shares the gospel, the good news, with this group of people who are very familiar with Scripture, who know the stories but don't know Jesus. Here's what he says. Given this opportunity, knowing his audience, he says, here's the gospel. He says, there are three dots, three dots, and Paul's going to connect them for us. The first dot is this, what God promised our fathers. There's a promise made. That's dot number one. There's a promise made. The second dot is this. He has fulfilled for us their children by raising up. There's a promise fulfilled. That's dot two. And then the third dot is Jesus. There's a promised one. That's dot three. So here's the good news. And Paul takes the scriptures and these stories, and he connects the dots for the people in the synagogue. He says a promise was made, and that promise has been fulfilled through the raising up of the promised one, Jesus. Knowing his audience so well, you see, if you have your Bible open there before you, he then uses Scripture, Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, Psalm 16, to show them he's just not making this stuff up. The same Scriptures they've, they've heard their whole lives, the same Scriptures that have been read to them every Sabbath day, And he uses these scriptures to help them to connect the dots. And let's look at each one of these dots this morning in the time that we have. Dot number one, again, is that there's a promise made. There's a promise made. Verse 32, again, Paul says, here's the good news. What God promised to our fathers. Now, if you kind of break that down. The verb here is singular, meaning that Paul is referring to a single promise. Not many promises, but just one. You see, the good news is there was this one promise made to our fathers, made to our ancestors. Now, in our reading of the Old Testament, we know that God made many promises to the people of Israel. So which promise is Paul talking about? Which one is he singularly referring to? You see, this is part of connecting the dots. Well, in verse 34, Paul quotes Isaiah 55, verse 3, saying, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So the one promise, as he shares the gospel, the good news with these people, 
The one promise Paul's referring to here is the one God made to David. It's the one that he made to a particular ancestor, David. Everyone in that synagogue knew the promise God made to David. Those of you here this morning who are familiar with Scripture know the promise. Simply put, God promised that David, that one of his descendants will be the Messiah. That's the promise. God made that promise to David. One of his descendants will be the Messiah. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, where we find that promise, God promised David, your house, your kingdom will endure forever before me. And your throne will be established forever. And so the promise is that a king of David, David will establish an eternal throne. And this is the Messiah. This is the Christ. You know, this is part of the reason why it was so devastating when the Babylonians defeated Judah in 586 B.C. and Jerusalem fell because there was no longer a king of David on the throne. And so now what? What about God's promise? What about the promise that he made? That's dot one. There's a promise made. Dot two, there's a promise fulfilled. Look back in verse 32 again. Paul says, here's the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up. Now, how could God fulfill such a promise? How is it possible? Well, the only way God could fulfill this promise to David of a king of one of his descendants, a king of David on an eternal throne is to somehow let one of David's descendants live forever. That's the only way that he could fulfill the promise that he made to him. And so let me help you connect the dots. In verse 35, Paul quotes Psalm 16. And there he says, you will not let your holy one, that's your anointed one, that's the Messiah, that's the Christ, that's the king, you will not let this one see decay. That's there in verse 35 in Psalm 16. He goes on to say uh, in verses 36, David served God's purpose in his own generation, and then he fell asleep. That's that's Luke's favorite term uh, for how to say that someone died. He fell asleep. Uh, And then he was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. So how is God going to fulfill his promise Resurrection. Resurrection. That's how he's going to fulfill it. You see, the Messiah 
what this tells us is the Messiah will die. It doesn't say, Psalm 16 doesn't say, you will not let your Holy One see death. It says, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You see, the Messiah will die. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, Paul says. They asked Pilate to have him executed. When they carried him away, carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. The Messiah will die, but he will not see decay. Resurrection. That's dot number two. There is a promise fulfilled. There's a promise made. There's a promise fulfilled. Here's dot three. There's a promised one. Verse 32, again, go back to verse 32. Paul says, here's the good news. What God promised our fathers, he's fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. He's the one. He's the one. So let me help you connect the dots. Paul quotes in verse 33. It's written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I've become your father. Oh, this is a great psalm. This was a famous psalm. Everyone in the synagogue had this psalm memorized. This was Psalm 2. There's two introductory psalms to the, to, the, to, whole, to the 150. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are both introductory psalms to the entire collection. Everybody had Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 memorized. Psalm 2 is one of these great messianic psalms. It was read at the coronation Every time a new descendant of David became the king, they read Psalm 2. And this was done both to celebrate the current king, but it was also done to point ahead to the day when a descendant of David would become the king forever. And this happened by God raising up Jesus. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. I love how verse 34 reads in the NIV 84. Paul says, it's a fact. He says, it's a fact that God raised him from the dead. It's not a theory. It's not a made-up story. It's a historical fact, and there are witnesses. God raised him from the dead, never to decay. Here's one that tasted death but didn't decay. Verse 37, but the one whom God raised from the dead did not see death. Decay. The Messiah, the Christ, our King, had to die. And we'll talk more about that next time.
But what I want you to see this morning is that he did not see decay. And he has risen to reign. He's risen to be the Messiah. He's risen to be the Christ. He's risen to be the king. He's risen to reign. Church, I have, I've tried to follow Paul's lead this morning and connect the dots for you. A group of people who are very familiar with Scripture. But unlike the people of Jerusalem and their rulers, I hope you recognized Jesus as king. Because here's the good news. What God promised, he has fulfilled by raising up Jesus. And sin no longer reigns and death no longer rules for those who recognize Jesus as their king. Amen? Let me repeat that. Sin no longer reigns and death no longer rules for those who recognize Jesus as their king. Is he your king? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news. Oh, man. Thank you for Paul taking the scriptures. We don't normally think, we don't normally think about preaching the gospel or sharing the good news with a group of people who know the Bible. That's what Paul did. And that's what I've attempted to do this morning. It's to preach this good news about a promise that was made. A promise that was fulfilled by the raising up of the promised one, Jesus the Christ. Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, our King. Pray all this in his name. Amen. This morning, we're going to sing a song of invitation. And if you're here this morning and Jesus is not your King, all you, you know who Jesus is, the Son of God, you, you know what he did for you. He died for your sins on the cross. But if he's not your king, then let me encourage you to repent. And what I mean by that is to get off the throne of your heart. It means that you are no longer in charge Come and make Jesus your king. Put him on in baptism. 
Declare today before your church family your allegiance and your loyalty to the king. Come, let's stand together and sing.